Hey, grab your Bibles. We're going to dive right into it. We're going to go to Romans chapter 12. Over the past two Sundays, you may have noticed we slowed way down, didn't we? We looked at just verses 1 and 2 over the last two Sundays, and we did that for, for two reasons. Number one, because those two verses serve as a critical hinge in the flow of Paul's letter to the Romans. He lays out this amazing theological foundation in chapters 1 through 11. Then he begins chapter 12 with his great therefore, and he lays this sort of hinge from theology to practical application. So they're really critical verses. And secondly, they're just flat out amazing verses, aren't they? Just so filled with life-changing application. So we slowed down. We looked at verses 1 and 2 uh, uh, solo the last two Sundays. And today we're going to bite off a little bit more. We're going to read verses uh, 3 through 8. Um, Sound and AV, can you give me some lights up here? Show me the magic. Boom. Look at that. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Let's back up. Let's reread those first two verses, and then we'll move forward into our study of 3 through 8. So Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, and this was the key phrase we looked at, by the mercies of God, right? By the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or rational service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, your thinking, so that you may prove or test and approve what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness." So here's what we're going to do this morning as we work our way through this. We're actually going to dive into the middle of the passage first, starting at verse 4, and then we're going to work our way back to verse 3, because verse 3 really is is the key in in this passage. It's really what powers Paul's big idea here. So we're going to to end with verse 3, but let's look first at what he says in verses 4 and 5, and then we'll move on to 6 through 8. So look at verse 4. For just as we have many members, or that can be interpreted as parts, many parts, In one body, and all the members or parts do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So there's a whole bunch of things going on in that that little uh, couple of verses here. But let's start with two very obvious things. I'll put them on the screen. First of all, there are many individual parts of the body of Christ. If you look around, you'll see them. They're everywhere in this room. If you look to your left and to your right, if you look ahead of you, if you look behind you, Many individual parts of the body of Christ. Every true believer and every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is a part of his body, which in the grand scheme of things is the universal church worldwide. 
Number two, there's a variety of different functions among the individual parts of the body. That means that some of us are administratively minded, while others of us are artistic. Some of us are handy, some of us are not handy. Some can teach, others can can sing and play musical instruments. Some of us are friendly and encouraging, some are knowledgeable, some are bent towards compassion and mercy and so on. But each one of us has a particular role to play in the body of Christ. And that's meant to be expressed locally. So there's the universal body of Christ here, but we're to express our, our, our role within the body here in the local church. Now, those are obvious things, and nobody who walked in off the street would really doubt those things. Even, a, even an unbeliever would come in off the street and say, well, yeah, I recognize that there's a whole bunch of individual people here in this auditorium this morning, and, and yeah, based on what I know about the human condition, I'm sure there's all kinds of different skills and abilities and personalities and talents. All of that is very, very normal, but there's some very unnormal things in this passage. We call them supernatural things, Right? Two things you see in verse 5. Number one, that we are all one body and key phrase in Christ. That is not normal. That is supernatural. We are one body in Christ. How is that possible? Based on what you know about the human condition, the human heart, and what you see going on around you, how is it possible that people of all ages, both men and women, from different races with different skin colors, from a multitude of cultural backgrounds, unique languages and dialects, that collectively they can be called one body. How is that possible? It's humanly impossible. The world would not recognize that as a possibility. But the Bible tells us that when we're individually in relationship with Christ, we are therefore in relationship with each other. That's important. If we're individually in relationship with Christ... That means, therefore, that we are all in relationship with each other. If I'm a child of God and you're a child of God, then we are brothers and sisters. In spite of anything else that that we might say somehow separates us in terms of identity, that is the transcending fact about us, that we are brothers and sisters. And I mean that in the most sincere way. Let me caution you. We should not use that term brothers and sisters unless we really mean it. It's not designed to be some quaint tradition. It's to speak to an absolute fact about who we are in Christ. It's a statement that is is so fundamental to our identity, it is more fundamental that we are brothers and sisters than your blood relationships. I know that seems a little strange and that even scares some people, but that is the fundamental identity of who you are. And that means our brother and sisterhood that we have as Christians in Christ even transcends blood relationships. But there's even something deeper to this. According to Scripture, there is a union that's been established between us and Jesus that, in my mind, is just mind-boggling. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. Sometimes we think of him as our, as our big brother. And I know that sounds a little strange because he's, we're so, we, we fall so short of who he is. But everything now, now I'm not talking about his deity and his divine attributes, but everything that he can share with us will be shared with us. That's amazing stuff. And the real cool part about it is all those things that he's going to share with us, he shares it with us together as one because we're part of his body. That means together we're forgiven. 
That means together we're justified. That means together we are redeemed. That means that we have experienced the new birth together, that we are loved by God together, that we are adopted into his family together. It means that we're being perfected together, even this day. And of course, it means that for all eternity, we will be together. So get used to each other. It's going to be a long time. But what a great truth. We're in this together. Friends, this is just one of the many reasons why we must never treat the church casually, as if it's optional, or as if it doesn't matter. What you share with the people in this room and what you share with brothers and sisters across this world is almost beyond our wildest imagination. But we'll spend all of eternity together figuring it out, right? Cannot wait for it. So that's the first supernatural thing, that we are one body. In spite of all of our differences, we're one body in Christ. The second thing is this, that we are members of one another. Verse 5, we are individually, Paul says, members of one another. Now read that again. And just take a moment and see if you can grasp the depth of that statement. We can read right past that and go, oh, yeah, I've read that before. Look at that carefully. Then look around again and say in your heart, everybody in this room is a part of me. I'm a part of you. You're a part of me. And that means that I play an essential role in your life and you play an essential role in my life as my brothers and sisters. In fact, my truest identity in Christ cannot be fully discovered and experienced unless I am playing my role in your life and vice versa. That's really how we come to know who we are. How's that possible? It comes back to this body metaphor that Paul uses, not just here, but in other places in the New Testament. Now, I know as your pastor elder, I have a more visible role in the church than you do, but know this, your role is essential to me being able to stand up here and serve God the way I do. Without you, I can't be up here. Without your role, I can't do what God's called me to do. And so we look at the body. We look at the legs of a runner, for example. The legs of a runner are the most visible thing on the outside that powers a runner. But without the lungs and the efficiency of the lungs, which are hidden from sight, those legs are going nowhere, aren't they? So each part of the body needs the other parts to grow and to succeed because each part of the body is inextricably connected together. Try to grasp that. That's amazing. Now, you probably don't recognize the name Charles Lawrence, but he's the man who developed the engine for the spirit of St. Louis. Some of you guys know the history, right? What was the spirit of St. Louis? It was the plane that Charles Lindbergh flew nonstop from New York to Paris in 1927. And that was a huge achievement in that day. And after that record-setting flight, friends of Charles Lawrence held a dinner in his honor. And they gathered together and they said all kinds of nice things about him. And here's how he responded. When everybody was done saying amazing things about this brilliant guy, he got up there and he said this. This is all very nice, so thank you. I appreciate it very much. But who ever heard of Paul Revere's horse? The fact is, Paul Revere needed a horse to do what he did. And Charles Lindbergh needed Charles Lawrence to do what he did. And so we get a picture then of what the body of Christ looks like. Even if very few people know, how many, anybody know the name of Paul Revere's horse? I, I don't either. You thought I was going to have some amazing tidbit for you. I don't. I didn't know who Charles Lawrence was either, 
but they're essential to the process, right? And the same thing is true in the body of Christ. So here's the bottom line. We need to lay aside our natural inclination towards individuality. This is particularly rooted in Americans, isn't it? Individuality. So that we can see the bigger, more beautiful picture that Paul paints for us. One body, all together, in all things, putting the priority on us and not me. It's always about us and not about me. Now, I realize, again, that cuts against the grain of typical American consumerism. But, folks, the church is not to be treated like a shopping mall or a buffet. It was never designed to be a place where you just casually attend whenever you feel like it. That is not the church. It's not a a show that you attend and then you leave. It's not a place that you, you drop in whenever it fits into your schedule. It's not for the purpose of getting your spiritual needs met. It's about us, not about me. It's not a classroom where you come for the lecture and then you go on your way. It's not a thing to be used for a season and then discarded while you look for something that might just fit your needs a little bit better. But that's what the American church has unfortunately taught us over the last couple decades. It's all about you and not about us. The New Testament describes the church as a vibrant, living organism with all these individual parts that are intimately connected to one another and all united in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and all living life together, as messy as that is, but prioritizing one another over ourselves. That's the picture that Paul gives us here in these first couple of verses. Now to that end, let's look at verses six through eight, where Paul then shows us the vehicle to make all this happen, the spiritual gifts. Oh boy, spiritual gifts, right? All this controversy that goes around with spiritual gifts. We're going to avoid most of that today because that's really not Paul's big idea in this passage. What we tend to do is we'll do a topical study on spiritual gifts and we'll pull from 1 Corinthians 12 and we'll pull here from Romans 12 and we'll, we'll do this topical study. But in context here, in the flow of Paul's letter, he's not trying to be controversial about what gifts have ceased and what gifts are, are still in, in, in use, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to look at it as Paul intends here. Now, the interesting thing in this, in this verse, verse 6, is that Paul doesn't give us a verb in this sentence. You Greek nerds it may, it may have even looked at that. There's no verb in this. So what, what has happened is that the various translators have had to sort of add that in to try to catch the idea of what Paul's trying to tell us here. So verse 6, this is in the NAS, says this, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, And this next phrase is simply added in by the translators of the NAS. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Now, I think the ESV says, let us use them. The CSB and others actually don't even add anything in there, although they sort of make up for it in the language that follows. But it's a little bit awkward in the original Greek. But here's what Paul's trying to tell us. Regardless, we could go into that, all those nuances of that. The point that Paul's making is this. God has given every one of you gifts, so use them. Say it with me. Use them. Good. So I don't want to get off track this morning and over-focus on spiritual gifts. Can I just give you my opinion on this? I think the church has, has, has overplayed the whole spiritual gifts phenomenon over the last 20 years. I really do. I think we've over-focused on it. We've, we've sort of made it this mysterious search for what our gifts are. And again, like typical Americans, we've taken something that was designed for the us, designed for the body, and made it about the me. Like, ooh, I've got to find my personal gift so that I can feel fulfilled in the church. That was not, I think Paul would be just tearing his hair out at that idea. 
Because again, it's about us and not about the me. It's the wrong focus. And beyond that, I think we've also viewed spiritual gifts in a way that's too mechanical. What we've done is we've tried to systematize it and we've tried to categorize all of it rather than just allowing the spirit in a very organic way to be sovereign in the church and to move people and to give people so that they serve one another. I just think our focus has been wrong on this. Spiritual gifts are are actually pretty simple and not mysterious. They're endowments of power given to us by the Holy Spirit that enable us to fulfill all the vital functions of the body of Christ. That's all. And in particular with one goal, and that's to build up and mature the saints. Okay, so they're endowments of power given by the Holy Spirit that strengthen us to do all the things that the church needs to do, and in particular with the goal of building up the saints, making us more mature in Christ. So they have nothing to do with human ambition. They're not a shopping list that we look around and we go, ooh, I like this one. This is the one I'm going to pray about. This is the one I want to have, and then seek to attain it. That is not the way it works. Spiritual gifts are sovereignly granted to us by God himself. In fact, you see here in verse 6, it's according to his grace that they're given to us. According to his grace. And if that's true, if they're given according to his grace, according to the fact, his unmerited favor in our lives that we have gifts, right? That's what grace means. That means whatever gift we have, it's not owing to anything great in us. True? If they're given to us by grace then the, the gift that you have, I don't care if you think it's the, I mean, the, the most spectacular gift in the church, it's not owing to anything great in you because it's by his grace. Once again, that means we have no reason to boast in the role that we play in the church. Not the preacher, not the elder, not the music leader, not the ministry team leader, none of us because every skill that we have, every talent that we have, every gift that we've been given comes from his sovereign and gracious hand. So he chooses our gifting, he supplies the power for it, and he equips the entire local body with all of the gifts that are necessary to make us go as a church family. The only thing that's left up to us is this. Will we be faithful to the gifts we've been given? That's why Paul says here, use the gifts. You've been given them, now use them. Be faithful to this. See, Paul sees two dangers here with the spiritual gifts. Number one is that you and I are not being faithful to get out there and do what we've been gifted to do, that we're lacking faithfulness in doing it. Now, why would we lack faithfulness in in our giftedness? Well, maybe we've just grown lazy. Maybe we're in a season of life where we're feeling apathetic about our walk with God or apathetic about the church. Maybe we're angry about something, so we've sort of pulled back from the church. Maybe we wish we had a different gift. Maybe we're just frustrated. God, I want a more prominent gift than the one you've given me. I don't want to have the gift of making coffee or sweeping the floors. Why couldn't I be that person? And so we don't take this calling seriously because we've got a warped view of the gifts that God has given us and why he's given them to us. And what a tragedy that would be if any one part of the body isn't exercising his or her gift, then get this now, if one of you is not exercising the gift that God's called you to do, we're not as healthy as we could be here at Oak Hill. Because if any part of the body is hurting, we all hurt, true? So that's one of the things, is that we won't be faithful in the actual exercising of the gifts. The other one is this, that the way we exercise those gifts would be inconsistent with God's grace, that we would exercise them in a way that's 
self-focused or self-centered and not for the benefits of others. And that can happen, right? What a tragedy that would be, that any of us would take God's gracious gifts for the purpose of being seen and admired by others, that we would impress men rather than God. Look at me. Look at all that I'm doing. Rather than from a heart that seeks to glorify God and to serve others. Those are the dangers of the spiritual gifts, that we would get off track in one of those ways. So check your heart. Are you being faithful in the way you exercise your gift? And are you doing it for the right reason? Is your motivation for the benefit of others? Or is it mixed with some measure of self-centeredness? If so, that's something to confess and to turn from. Amen? So let's look at the list of gifts here in verses 6 through 8. First, we have prophecy. Now that, I'll make a statement about that is a first century gift that has ceased. Remember, during the writing of the New Testament, and Romans is obviously a part of that, this is a time when God was still speaking through his apostles and prophets during the New Testament period. But today we have the full and complete canon. It's sitting on your lap, right? God has spoken clearly through it. It's all we need for faith and practice. And so this gift of prophecy where God is speaking revelation through his apostles and prophets has ceased. But then come some very familiar things, service and teaching and exhorting or the gift of encouragement. And then there's a second grouping of gifts here, and you see added to them specific attitudes and motivations. He who gives, it says, or contributes, how should he do it? Generously. He who leads, how should he do it? With zeal, zealously, with passion. And he who shows mercy, how should he do it? Cheerfully or with joy. So you look at this list, and I'll have a number of things to say about the gifts in a moment, but how do they look here at Oak Hill? In terms of service, what does Paul have in mind? Well, I think Paul has in mind the meeting of uh, this very practical, uh, this group that likes to meet very practical, very ordinary things within the ministry, life of ministry. Things like setting up on Sunday morning, right? Drape duty, right? Or decor. Simple, ordinary things that, that bless others, right? Simple, ordinary things. The gift of service. What else? Watching over our little ones in the nursery. If you've never been to the nursery or children's ministry, you should just pop by every once in a while and thank the volunteers over there. That's the gift of service. We're blessed by them. The guys that are running our sound and AV, we tend to overlook them. As long as there's no mistake on the screen, we forget they're there. Right? No mistakes, please. But many of the things that our body life team does in putting together fellowship events, these are the gifts of service. We're talking about things like you know, hosting events and purchasing supplies and something as mundane as moving tables and chairs around the valley so that we can enjoy fellowship together. People with the gift of service, all they do is go around saying, is there a need that I can fill? The fact is, for us to be a healthy and fully functioning church, we need a small army of these people. Uh, Honestly, these are are my favorite people. Because I I get to get up here and flap my gums. I need people that are just willing to go out and do ordinary things so that, so that church can happen. And I don't take you for granted. I want you to know I always look to see who's serving. I, I just love it because what I see when I see people doing mundane things like curtains or setting up chairs or whatever, I see Christ. I see Christ working in you. I see the, the, the gifts of the Spirit being, being flamed in you. It's a beautiful thing. We need servants. 
In terms of teaching, we're blessed to have a roster of teachers here at Oak Hill. God has brought people here who have the gift of teaching. And by the way, they're not just gifted teachers, but they're motivated by a desire to stretch and mature the membership. And they have shepherds' hearts. Because it's not enough just to deliver knowledge, right? Just to be a good teacher. But it's, it's, it's when a shepherd is teaching that really cares to see you grow and mature in the faith. That's a beautiful thing. In terms of exhorting, what we want to do is constantly remind our members that everybody should be exhorting one another and encouraging one another. But some of us in the body are particularly gifted at this. They have a bent towards encouraging. Do you know some people like this? Aren't they like the, the best people to be around? They speak kind words. They speak words of encouragement all the time. They're exhorting you to grow and to mature in the faith. They're wonderful to have around. In terms of giving, now this is an interesting one, right? This is where everyone sort of turns away from this one. Ooh, the gift of giving. But there are extraordinary people in our little church family, givers, and they have an extraordinary desire to give away all kinds of money and resources for the advancement of the kingdom. And what's amazing is some of them are quite successful. They're business people. They're successful. They have a lot to give away. Some of our most generous givers don't have a lot. You'd put them on the less than, you know, they, you'd put them on the poor side of the scale. But in proportion, they're incredibly generous. That is a gift of God, and I praise him for it. In terms of leading, you know how I feel about our elder team. I say it all the time. It is the most amazing group of men. We have a blast together. We love each other. We, we think leading this church is the greatest thing that God's ever called us to. Same thing with our ministry leaders. They give up so much of their time and their energy for your sake. And they not only do it consistently, uh, again, to lead, but to, but to lead with a shepherd's heart. Always, they're always looking to sacrifice themselves for your benefit. And finally, in terms of showing mercy, this is, I think, one of the fastest areas of growth that we've seen here at Oak Hill. Uh, so many people, as God is knitting our hearts together, we're getting better at, better at really knowing each other on a deep level. Not just on the surface, not just, hey, good morning on Sunday, but knowing each other on a deep level. God is pulling us together, and so we want to be there for each other in the good times and in the trials as well. And so our care team in particular is really living this out right now, seeking to meet all kinds of practical needs, whether it's meals or helping with a move or just praying for people. And so we're showing mercy to one another. So this is what we're seeing happening here at Oak Hill. We see God's promise to equip this local body with all the gifts that we need to be healthy. He is doing that now. Now it's up to each one of us to grow in our faithfulness, to exercise those gifts so that our body will continue to mature as one. Amen? It's exciting. I'll tell you, 12 years, this church is 12 years old, and we've seen the steady growth of the gifts being exercised in this body. But we have room to grow. And that's an exciting thing, right? And before we move on, a couple more things I want to say about the spiritual gifts. First, know that this list that Paul gives us in Romans 12, this is by no means an exhaustive list. So we don't look at this and say, well, oh boy, I've only got like six choices here for spiritual gifts. In fact, I'm of the opinion that there is no set number of spiritual gifts. I know there's a, like three different places we often go to to look at the gifts. I don't think there's a set number. I don't want to be that mechanical about it. When you look carefully at the various lists, you find that oftentimes these different gifts, they sort of overlap on each other, right? And sometimes gifts that are, appear to me to be the same thing are called by different names. And so I think, 
I think it's designed to be sort of a mosaic of things, but I don't think there's a set number of gifts. I don't think we need to be so rigid in defining them. Paul's point, again, seeing the big picture, is that God has gifted you to do something for the sake of the body, something that is absolutely necessary for the health of this body, so get going. Have I said that, what, three times already? That is the bigger issue rather than some mysterious search for what am I supposed to be doing, get up and serve. That's the fourth time. I'll stop. Not an exhaustive list. Number two, even though the Holy Spirit empowers us to exercise our gifts, we still need to work at them and we need to develop them. So if God is giving you the gift of teaching, it's not, okay, well, I get to sit on the couch now and do nothing and God is going to magically equip me to do that. No, we have to get up and develop the, the, the gifts that God has given us. In fact, I think this is a, sort of the basis of what we see in 2 Timothy 1. You know how Paul, he exhorts Timothy to, this is the quote, kindle afresh the gift of God that was given to him. And you get a sense that Timothy had allowed the, the giftedness that Paul had given him by laying on hands, to, he'd let it sort of languish by, by unuse or disuse, right? And so whatever your gift is, your time and your effort and your attention is required to fan that flame, to kindle it afresh, to grow in that, to develop that that gift for the glory of God. Not for glory of self, but for the glory of God, okay? So we we don't trust, we don't do what we call magical thinking, where I can sit on the couch and eat bonbons, and um, God is going to magically sprinkle some fairy dust, and I'm going to be the best teacher in the history of the church. It doesn't work that way. We work and we develop. Last thing, and this comes with a caution. Many of the spiritual gifts that you see in Scripture are things that God expects of all believers. All believers. In some measure, all of us. That includes all of these gifts in verse 12. Guys, we are all called to serve in a general way, aren't we? We are all called to teach and encourage one another. We're all called to give generously. And we're all called to show mercy. Those are just ordinary Christian virtues. Those are ordinary fruits of the work of the Spirit in your life. So here's my caution that goes with this. Don't think to yourself, that's not my gift, so I can opt out of it. Because we're we're, oftentimes we're looking for an excuse not to do things. Well, you know, that moving of tables and chairs, not my gift. Because it's hard. Ah. Uh, I have the gift of knowledge. I'll sit at home and study. Well, maybe the greater need in that moment is tables and chairs. Okay, so we can't opt out of things. We should all have our eyes open for needs in the body and then be quick to help no matter what our spiritual gifts are. So if you have the gift of teaching, but you're at a church function and cleanup needs to be done, what do you do? Clean up. You have the gift of wiping down tables in that moment. So what's the benefit then of of spiritual gifts? Well, it's going to help you to focus your energy and effort, but it doesn't give you an excuse to opt out of everything. Make sense? Okay, good. So how do we discover our spiritual gifts? I even hate mentioning that question because, again, it takes me back to a sort of a, a, a bad time in the church. Can I just give you really simple advice to find out your spiritual gift? Start serving. I think that's the fifth time I've said it. Get working. Start serving. Don't get all paralyzed by the question, well, if I do that, I don't know if I'm actually fulfilling God's will for me. If you're serving the body of Christ, you're in God's will. So start serving. And if God wants to redirect you, 
He'll redirect you. He'll be the one that says, no, you're going to move over here for my glory because that's what the church needs. Let him do that in his perfect timing. By the way, this made me laugh. I actually read um, a blog article about this. Uh, This one pastor said, if you really want to be challenged in the area of spiritual gifting, ask yourself this question. What do I complain about most in the church? That made me laugh. What do I complain most about? Because people tend to complain in the area of their giftedness. Ooh. So if my gift is teaching, there's a good chance I might complain that the teaching is weak. Right? Those gifted in administration often grumble about the church being disorganized. Folks who have the gift of, uh, of mercy wonder why the church isn't doing more to care for people. Folks who have the gift of evangelism often complain, why aren't we doing local outreach? And you know what the solution to this is, right? Stop complaining and do it. You be the solution. Every pastor likes to say that. Be the solution, right? If that's your giftedness and you've been complaining about it, jump in and fix it for the glory of God. Okay. That's all I'll say about that. All right, let's go back to verse 3. Let's, I really want to now get to... So, so that's sort of uh, the, the fleshing out of Paul's big idea. But what's Paul's big idea? Well, that's verse 3. Look at verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Ooh. Paul's warning. Don't think too highly about yourself. What do we call that? Spiritual pride. Pridefulness, egotism, self-love, self-regard. Obvious question. The answer's right there in the, in the verse. Who does this apply to? Everyone. Nobody opts out of this one, man. Everyone. That's what Paul says. He says, I say to everyone among you. Here's what that tells me, a couple things. First of all, that pridefulness is deeply ingrained in every human being, without exception. We all at different times and in varying degrees think too highly of ourselves. And second, this tells me, in light of the fact that Paul is writing to the church, it tells me that pridefulness can still live and flourish in the heart of a Christian. Mm. So beware, brothers and sisters, this particular sin is a silent killer. It's a silent killer. It's both sinister and it's stealthy because it's rooted in some of the deepest pockets in our heart. Things, places we may not even be aware of. It might be so subtle at times that we are completely unaware that it's present in our hearts. Remember, pride was the original sin even before Adam was made. I mean, it predates Adam, the sin of pride. Ezekiel tells us that Satan's heart was lifted up. That's, that's, that's the Old Testament way of talking about pride. His heart was lifted up, get this, because of the gifts that God had given him which were riches and beauty. Those gifts caused him to fall. Rather than remain in his position and give thanks to God for those gifts and to give glory to God for those gifts, what did he do? He sought to make himself like the Most High. And he fell. And then, of course, we get to Genesis and we read that he shows up in the garden in the form of the serpent and he tempts Eve to do the very same thing. What a scoundrel. The very thing that brought him down, he now passes on to humanity. That by eating the forbidden fruit, that she also could become more like God. 
by having her eyes open so that she might know good from evil. It's the sin of pride. And we could sit here all day long and we could walk through all of human history and we would see that the root of every single conflict in human history, from, from world wars to strife in marriage to, to conflicts in the church, they're all rooted in the very same sin. Sinister and stealthy is the pride of a man's heart. And so we're constantly warned about this in Scripture. We read in our call to worship this morning from Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction and a naughty spirit before a fall. In 1 Corinthians 10, we're warned this, let him who thinks he stands take heed so that he does not fall. Pride, serious thing. So what's the remedy for it? What's the opposite of it? Biblical humility. That's what Paul wants to get to in verse 3 here. Biblical humility. By the way, it's worth noting here that just after telling us in verse 2 that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Paul points us to humility. Hmm. So whatever you were thinking last week when we talked about this renewed thinking, notice how Paul says the very first thing on my list of renewed thinking is humility. So if you were convicted last week, you're like, man, you got home, you're like, wow, I need to... I want to be more transformed. I need to renew my worldview, renew my thinking. Guys, start right here. Check your heart. Check your mind. Do you think more highly of yourself than you ought to? Biblical humility. That's a transformed mind. That's where it starts. Now, what does that mean exactly? Let me give you a couple definitions of humility. And I'll give you some definitions from guys that are way smarter than me. So a couple quotes. Humility is a recognition on the part of the creature of his absolute dependence on his creator. It's a logical consequence of the creature's consciousness of his sin. Okay? So it's understanding how, who we are, who God is, and being conscious of our sin, what separates us from him. Here's another one. Humility is the place of entire dependence on God. It's the root of all virtues because it alone takes the right attitude before God, seeing how truly God is all. Humility is the root of all virtues, just as pride is the root of all sin, is what he's saying. Now, more simply, quote, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Without an honest awareness of both of those realities, all self-evaluation will be skewed. That's humility. Humility knowing both of those things, God's holiness and our sinfulness. And finally, most practically, quote, when someone is humble, they're focused on God and others, not on self. Even their focus on others is motivated by a desire to point all glory to God. They simply no longer live for themselves. Doesn't that ring true? When Jesus says, die to yourself and take up a cross, they simply no longer live for themselves. They've been bought at a cost. So they've died to self. That's humility. So don't brush past this important text as Paul transitions from theology to practical Christian living in this vast letter to the Romans. As he talks about having a transformed mind, he starts here with humility. Hundreds of years later, by the way, Augustine, the great theologian, he was asked one time, so what is the first thing in godliness? You know what he said? Augustine said, I'll give you the top three. Humility, humility, humility. Why? Why first, second, and third? Well, recall that Paul implied in verse 1 that the motive behind all Christian living is our response to God's mercy, right? 
And I would add this, the completely undeserved mercy of God. And so when we become prideful, we reject that truth. We're saying, however subtly, when we're prideful, that we deserve better. That we're owed something by God or by others. How awful it is that we've been ignored or that we're not appreciated or that other people, including God, have failed to serve us, failed to meet our needs and our desires. That's spiritual pride. Focus on me. When we think highly of ourselves, we forget who we are in relation to God. We forget the depth of our own sinfulness that we've been forgiven of. We act as if we're not in desperate need of Christ or his atonement at the cross. To think highly of yourself is to forget that you deserve condemnation, but instead you've been given, you've been chosen, you've been called, you've been drawn, and you've been justified by his grace alone. Now, I know some of you are saying, ah, that's not me, I never think that way. Oh boy. Some of you are like, no, I, I, I'm constantly preaching the gospel myself. I would never think that way. Let him who thinks he stands take heed so that he does not fall. Guys, pride is so fundamental and so pervasive in our hearts that we're rarely able to recognize it in ourselves. It's one of the reasons we need accountability with others. We are constantly in the grip of becoming prideful. I'll give you an example. William Cowper, Grant knows who that is. He's a, a great hymn writer. He once said this. He said, I can't even praise God for his grace without taking pride in how well I praise him. That's true. It is that subtle. It is that pervasive in the heart of man. One of the reasons like, Christians like us today are, are still struggling with this is, is I, I think if you look at our culture today, we've actually institutionalized pride. It is everywhere around us. You look at, you look at politicians, you look at celebrities, you look at our, our favorite athletes, you look at artists. Our culture celebrates and rewards arrogance and hubris in people. We absolutely love it. The people with the most bluster and the most snark and the most self-promotion win. Those are the people that grab our attention. We think they're interesting. We think it's funny. We're, we gravitate towards those arrogant people. So it's no surprise that as we Christians live in this world, even when we're trying to be strangers and aliens, we can become desensitized to it because it's so pervasive all around us. And without much thought at all or awareness, we can find ourselves boasting on social media. We can find ourselves promoting our latest accomplishments, glorying in our material things, advertising that our children are honor students. Hmm. All kinds of things. And, and, and we, because we've been so desensitized to it, we don't even realize that it's raised its ugly head from the depths of our hearts. So catch this. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves even boasting in our humility. How many times have you been to, a, you've been to a, a small group study or a Bible study and one person sort of breaks down and he or she begins to talk about how broken they are over their sin? And, and you know on the surface of, of his or her heart, I know what he or she's trying to, trying to say, that they're glad that they're broken over sin, but after a while of listening to that, you begin to think, oh my goodness, he's actually being proud of his brokenness. I mean, that's how... That's how it can be, how sensitive and how subtle it can be. Sinister and stealthy is pride in the heart of man. C.S. Lewis talked about this in Screwtape Letters. 
You know the story. The senior demon, Screwtape, says to his nephew, Wormwood, he finds out that Wormwood's been working on a Christian who's starting to, be, to grow in humility. And this is what he says. He says, this is very bad. Okay, this is demons talking. He says, this is very bad. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to that? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them, but this is especially true of humility. So catch him at the moment when he's really poor in spirit and snuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, look how humble I'm being. And almost immediately pride, pride in his own humility will appear. If he awakes to that danger, then try to smother this new form of pride, making him, making him proud of his attempt and so on through as many stages as you please. It's the enemy's strategy to constantly draw this pride out of our hearts. So I, I give you all that not to discourage you, not to depress you, but just to let you know that this is a very subtle and sinister thing, and we need to pay attention to it. We're not going to do it perfectly, but we need one another in the body of Christ to hold each other accountable. So if Paul doesn't want us to think pridefully, look at the verse again. How does he want us to think? This is important. Look back at verse 3. Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have what? Sound or sober judgment. Sound or sober judgment. So this is cool. Just like in verse 2, Paul gives us both a negative and a positive. In verse 2, he said what? Don't be conformed, but be transformed. Now he says, don't think highly of yourself, think soundly. This is how a Christian mind that's being progressively renewed operates. It begins to think soundly. It begins to discern and judge things rightly. It exercises, the word is exercising control over, over the mind, sobriety. And it slowly puts to death its overestimation of self. Guys, listen, that's what a renewed mind does. It slowly puts to death the overestimation of self. And in place of a focus on self, there's a greater focus on Christ, thinking more highly of him rather than me. I've always liked John Piper's definition of humility. He says this, quote, it's a kind of self-forgetfulness that's produced by treasuring Jesus. A self-forgetfulness that comes from treasuring Jesus. In other words, the biblical alternative to thinking too highly of ourselves is to think most highly of Christ. Or as John the Baptist once said, he must increase, I must decrease. Those are wise words, aren't they? So in order to kill the pride of our hearts, we do a few things. First, we remember our sinfulness and our hopelessness apart from God's saving grace. We force ourselves to face the facts about who we were before we were covered by the blood of the cross. As one pastor put it, we hold our nose to the unpleasant smell that comes from our heart. Ew. But secondly, we then let Christ increase in our mind. We let him grow in our mind. We think so highly of him that we begin to think less of ourselves. Okay? So those are two really important things. There it is, sound thinking. But now I want to give you a third. And this really is the big idea of this entire passage. Biblical humility is a remedy for spiritual pride. Sound thinking is a remedy for spiritual pride Here's number three, not self-reflection, but action. Action taken on behalf of others in the body of Christ. You want to kill your pride? Serve other people. 
I'll say it what the sixth or seventh time. Get going. <laughs> Start serving. The best and most effective antidote to pride is always focusing on serving other people. Use your gift. Get to work. Do what Paul tells all proud people to do. Serve other people. Be intentional about it. Don't just wander into the church on Sunday and go, ah, another week went by, I didn't think about serving other people. Be intentional. Lay the axe at the root of the sin of pride in your life. And be intentional about serving other people. And do it even if you don't feel like it. Do it even if it's hard. Even if you say, my calendar is full, serve other people. Even if it costs you something valuable. And the promise we're given in scripture here is when we put our gifts to work for the sake of others and for the sake of the body as a whole, and when we do it from the right motivation because of the mercies of God, then over time, humility is going to grow in our hearts and that spiritual pride in us is going to wither and die. That's the work that God will do in us. Now, are there dangers of pride in exercising our gifts? Oh, let me count the ways. Right? This is the frustrating thing. Sinister and stealthy is the pride in the heart of man. If we're not careful, we may begin to think too highly of ourselves because of the gifts that God gives us. Oh, I'm a, I'm a teacher. People come to me for wisdom. Look at me. I have the gift of knowledge. Oh, sit around, students, and learn from me. Right? I'm a missionary. Look at how much I've sacrificed for the kingdom of God. Look how prominent my gift is. See how many people admire me. So many ways to fall into pride because of our gifts. As somebody who's been through seminary, here's a question. How many guys go into the ministry to be admired? So many. Having been there, I can tell you there, there are so many guys that say, I want to be a pastor because I get to stand up in front and be admired by people. Spiritual pride. How is it that so many people then fall into worship of the guy who's preaching? They've been conditioned in pride. It's a vicious cycle of pride, both the guy up here and the guy, people in the audience, because we haven't understood what Scripture says on this subject. There's a true story about the great missionary Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was scheduled to speak at a large Presbyterian church in Melbourne, Australia one day. And the moderator of the service came up and introduced him in a very eloquent way with glowing terms. He told the congregation about everything that Hudson Taylor had accomplished in China. And then he said, let's welcome our illustrious guest. And Hudson Taylor came up to the pulpit and he just stood there quietly. You know, one of those just awkward pauses. And then he opened his message with these words. Dear friends, I am but a little servant of an illustrious master. May we learn from that example. As we're exercising our gifts, if Hudson Taylor could recognize that potential for spiritual pride in him, a guy who accomplished so much for the kingdom, we need to follow that example. So here's the challenge. When we're exercising our gifts we're doing so because God has strengthened us in a particular area. And he's strengthened us for the sake of people who are weaker in that area. That's a recipe for pride, isn't it? God says, look, I'm going to gift you in this area. I'm going to make you strong in this area so that you can help people who are weaker in this area. And so what's the first thing we want to do? Lord that power over people. Just look at me. 
Very, very tempting. When we misinterpret that strength as our own and not as a grace from God, that's when we stumble and we fall. And so the place where humility is most required, listen to this, is in our perceived strengths. In whatever your perceived strength is, that's where humility is most required. Friends, Paul is saying more than just use your gifts. He's saying use them with great humility. Always remembering where your strength comes from. Because what matters to God is not just that we use the gifts, but that we use them and exercise them from the right heart. So let me put these pieces of the puzzle together because I'm out of time. When we, we, we take these sort of three sections and we put them together, here's, here's where we end up. The Christian life that's being transformed by God comes through renewed thinking. Renewed thinking. And the first thing on the top of the list of what renewed thinking looks like is biblical humility. Not overestimating yourself, but thinking soundly about who you really are and about who Christ really is. And as your focus on self decreases, your focus on him increases. And how does this new way of thinking look? In a practical way, very simple. It's going to manifest itself in how you function in this local church. You want to show that your mind is being renewed, that you're growing in humility? Manifest it in how you function within this local body. That's what Paul wants to tell you. Your innate sense of living independent of others has got to wane, and you're going to begin to see more clearly how much you belong to others, how much they belong to you, and your desire to live life together with your brothers and sisters in the local church should be growing. That's what it means to have a renewed mind. That's what it means to have biblical humility. Most importantly, you're going to sense a greater sense of urgency to exercise those spiritual gifts within the body for the benefit of others, for the benefit of the church as a whole. And you're going to want to do it generously and fervently and joyfully. Guys, there are marks that we can lay down to say, am I growing in this? Paul gives them to us in this passage. How are you functioning within this local body? What is the church? How are we to operate within this this living, vibrant organism that, that God calls the church? We're to live life together in all these ways as we grow in biblical humility. This is such an exciting way to live. Can I just tell you, if you're just floating in church life, I'm not telling you you need to be at Oak Hill as a member because maybe we're not the right church for you. Stop floating. Stop just bopping around to try to find the best thing for you. Commit to a group of believers so that you can exercise your gifts within an actual local body of Christ. Amen? Because that's where you're going to find biblical humility. That's where you're going to find maturity. Stop floating. It's an exciting way to live, I'm telling you. I'll be honest with you. When we planted Oak Hill 12 years ago, I didn't understand that. Moment of transparency. I still didn't get it. I'm beginning to get I'm just now beginning to get it. At the age of 55, 30 years in the church, I'm getting it. And it's beautiful. Commit to the body of Christ. Amen? Let's pray.